So we're thinking about family squabbles or the battle of the brides. How do you compare Isaac, the father, with Jacob, the son? I came across this um, little ditty. It's a bit like getting a flat tire. Isaac was like a slow puncture and Jacob was like a blowout. So think of those two metaphors, one that's slowly, diminishingly going down, but Jacob, who stole his brother's birthright. And uh, we now looking really at a, a very disruptive passage of Scripture. It's the story of Jacob's marriage and family life, and it reads very much like a modern-day soap. The story is told of competition between two women and their maids, which results in Jacob being shuttled from bedroom to bedroom and tent to tent. And in the story, Jacob is living outside the land of promise. Remember, he's going towards the promised land. But God has promised to him his presence, his protection, and his provision, the three Ps. And he's at work at Jacob's life to purge him of those patterns and sins that have characterized him in the past. And as we approach this passage, we're aware that, that Moses has not arranged the events chronologically, but more topically about the, the birth, etc., of the children. And the account is written so we might be able to identify with these two women, both who are desperately want to secure Jacob's affection and love. So the first thing we're going to look at is Leah longs for love. She longs for love. In her early years of child rearing, we find Leah at the high point of her spiritual life. And you can read about these in verses 30, chapter 29, verses 31 to 35. And now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, and Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, which means, I, I behold a son. I don't know if many of you know, but one of my skill set was to be a midwife at my second child's birth. I hasten to add this was not in the plan, nor the contract, um, but he arrived very swiftly, and uh, it was a remarkable event at a late evening, and uh, a minor argument with his mother where she, whether she was going to stay in the bath or not. And I was said, we can't teach him to swim so early. Um, and I beheld a son, and it was a remarkable thing, and we named him Reuben John. And uh, when we think about Leah, she said uh, in verse 31, 32, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. And she so quested for Jacob's love. And what a sad predicament Leah is in. She's married to a man who never wanted her for a wife, who refuses to give her the love that she so desperately needs. But God in his tenderness 
reaches out to her by giving her a much-desired son, Reuben. And Leah's hopes for a small portion of Jacob's affections were not realised, as she's seen by her response to the second birth, which is in verse 33. Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me a son also, named Simeon. There's no change in Jacob's attitudes or actions towards Leah. Simeon means he hears, God hears me. And we find that Leah and her house provided Jacob with three sons because she has another son uh, with him. And in verse 34, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And these sons were profound in the Hebrew tribes, um, the Israel tribes that God was going to form. And so we need to ask ourselves, where are we searching for love? And our world is looking for things, and you'll try and fill that love with all sorts of things, whether it be tinsel, whether it be people, whether it be in possessions, whether it be in activities or substances. People are questing for love. And what Leah doesn't recognize is that actually God is going to be the source of her deepest need. She sought Jacob's love so desperately, and the pinnacle of Leah's piety was that she came to understand in the early part of being given Reuben that she was beloved. She was led by God. And while Jacob's affection waned, that it's when she named her son Judah which means to praise the Lord. She had arrived at that place of praise. I want you to hold that thought there, because then we move to the other character, Rachel. And Rachel was jealous at Leah's fertility. And we read about this in verse, chapter 30, verses 1 to 8. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld you the fruit of the womb? And what we see here is that Rachel is blaming Jacob for her lack of procreation. And his hot response is one of outrage. Don't blame me, blame God. And Jacob employed spiritual language and used God to rebuke her. And it wasn't said in the right tone or the right spirit. And we often, sometimes in our Christian community, can say, I want to say this to you in Christian love. And that's a red flag for many of us because it's a way of actually piercing someone else. It can be a least loving act. Well, we're told that Jacob had a great love for Rachel. It's not very evident in her life. She was very jealous, and jealousy drives people to desperate measures, illogical actions, unforeseen consequences. And so Rachel offers up Bilhah, her maidservant, and then she bears one and two children to um, 
to her family line. And what we find here is the results were not as Rachel had hoped. Her response sounded spiritual, one would think, and she named Dan, meant Dan was to be judged. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. With mighty wrestlings, I wrestle with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. And so Rachel saw this as a great struggle, not with God, but with her sibling. Her main interest was in the birth of this second child, was that she'd beaten her sister. Now, I don't know how good at arithmetic she was, but in my maths it doesn't quite work out, because Leah had four, it was like Liverpool versus Everton going on here. It was 4-2 down, but Rachel sort of took the high ground, so it seemed. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the author says to us, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we think about the beginning of this year, that is such a great thing. And Rogers reminded us similarly that the standing under the cross of Christ is a great place to be at the beginning of this year, reminding ourselves of the great sacrifice of our Lord. Well, Leah, thirdly, learned her lesson. She now, you think she learns a lesson, she follows suit because her womb seems to have uh, closed up. She's going to now employ her maidservant, Zilpah, for actually providing her with children, her maidservant. And she names them um, Judah, as we heard about earlier. And Rachel's uh, jealousy continues. This is like a, a soap opera. Do you remember Dallas on TV? You know, you had J.R. and Sue Ellen, who were a couple, the older brother and the sister, well, the wife. And then you had Bobby and Pam. And the shenanigans that went on in that soap opera were quite extraordinary on that ranch. And so we see that they had forfeited any sense of godliness in this relationship. They were trying to gain ground on one another. And we need to be very mindful about what we wish for in 2020. And sometimes we think about New Year goals and we think about, oh, weight loss or we think about fitness or we think about acquiring certain assets, whether it be a new language, a new skill or a new endeavor for the church. And sometimes I think maybe a noble goal for us would be that we worry less, that we fear less, that we're kinder and more loving to others around us, more patient. And then their whole perception of ourselves. A writer called Brené Brown talks about this, um, about often we are more concerned about how people see us than how we see ourselves. This morning I was in Coggeshaw reminding the congregation about the royal commands to love God and love 
your neighbour as yourself. You can't love your neighbour until you learn to respect and love yourself. And so we need to think about how God looks at us and how God cherishes us. Well, then we hear a part of the story. It's the purchase of a potion. And uh, before I get to that, um, there was an Irish novelist and playwright called Samuel Beckett. And he received great recognition for his work. But not everyone savoured his accomplishments. In fact, Beckett's marriage was soured by his wife's jealousy of his growing fame and success as a writer. And one day in 1969, his wife Suzanne answered the telephone, listened for a moment, spoke briefly and hung up. She then turned to Beckett with a stricken look, whispered, what a catastrophe. Was it devastating tragedy? No, she'd just learned that Beckett had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So Reuben discovers mandrakes. These were berries that were known to facilitate, uh, to fertilize and stimulate um, lovemaking and enhance the chances of conception. And then even here we have Rachel saying to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? Would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore may he lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. And so Jacob comes in from the evening and he's ordered, this is, you're going to be in this tent tonight. And he bears her a fifth son, we hear about. God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. She named him Issachar. Jacob had failed as a husband that his wife had to resort to a form of prostitution. So we see this awful toing and froing in this extraordinary relationship. And the extraordinary part of it is that God used this early first family, if you like, this fractured family. His grace overshadowed their shortcomings as he overshadows our shortcomings. After all of Rachel's devices and schemes had been exhausted, God blesses her and says she conceived and bore a son and she says in 22:23 God has taken away my reproach and she named him Joseph it's often the way when we're at the end of our tether God then begins to work in our lives where we begin to trust him in such a deep way prayer is not something that occurred to Rachel. She didn't think about praying to God as a solution, as it seems an, a last resort to her. I never cease to be amazed by some people who leave prayer as the last-ditch option in their lives. It's also interesting if you ask someone in your neighbourhood or in the street this week, can I pray for you? Nine times out of ten, people say, yes, please. They want prayer. It's significant to them. And Joseph was significant in the line of Jesus. 
It's the name Joseph means, Asap, which means I've taken away. It's the reference to the removal of barrenness. And there is a new hope. There is a new beginning. So what do we conclude in summary from this extraordinary passage of Scripture? We may be inclined to read this account of the struggles between Leah and Rachel and think, well, it's long ago, far away, and therefore there's little application to us. Well, I think the truth can, is, is very far from that. Firstly, childbearing is a gift of God. It doesn't, it's not always the fulfillment of life's meaning, nor is it a score or a race between siblings. It's a gift of God and to be cherished and a sign of blessing. Secondly, we know that um, Rachel and Jacob particularly use spiritual language to keep his wives down. And we need to be wary of spiritual language to sanctify sin. When an action is motivated by power to succeed over another unscrupulously, when pride is a driver within us and it drives our actions and we wrap our actions in Christian language, we need to be careful that we are not fooling ourselves. God sees and knows each of our hearts and we need to be in, integrous in how we are true to who we are before God. Thirdly, no one is perfect. This is good news. We have all failed, me more than most. But St. Paul reminds us in Romans 3, verse 23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. You may have failed by 49% and the pass mark is 50%. Others may have failed by 20%, but we are all short of the glory of Jesus. And we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. And that's something we need to weave into our theology and discipleship. Fourthly, particularly from this scripture, we must pluck out any roots of jealousy towards family and neighbours because it will destroy your relationships. It will actually destroy you and it will produce toxic relationships. So I want to close with a fable it's a story of an eagle which could not fly, well, it couldn't outfly another eagle. And he didn't like it. And so he saw a sportsman with a, a weapon one day and said to him, I wish you could bring that other eagle down because he outsmarts me, outflies me. The sportsman replied that he would if only had some feathers to put in his arrows. So the eagle pulled out one from his wing. The arrow was shot but didn't quite reach the rival eagle up in the sky. It was flying too high. The envious eagle pulled out more feathers and kept pulling them out until he lost so many he couldn't fly. And then the sportsman turned around and killed him. 
And so if we know people or are any aspects of jealousy in our lives, the only person that jealousy will hurt is yourself. And so our prayer at the beginning of this year is that any envy, God will infiltrate all of our lives, our motives, our drivers, hidden, take away guilt or false shame and bring healing and restoration in 2020. Amen. We've been really blessed with some fantastic choices. We've been reminded of God's great greatness in creation, about trusting the Lord as our shepherd God, about having a heart for those in the streets, about the cross of Christ as being the hallmark of the focus for ourselves. The final hymn's been chosen by Keith, and it's a hymn that has a couple of meanings for him. One is when the choir developed a four-part harmony around this hymn. It's a fantastic hymn. Um, I always remember it because of when I used to preach, when I was at college, we used to go to South Wales, and this is where it emanates from, and the writer was William Williams. How about that? What a name. And it's a fantastic hymn called Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. And I can't think of a better hymn to end with as we look forward to 2020 under the care of our Heavenly Father. Let's stand to sing.